Greetings. Welcome to episode 40 of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, presented by Library of the Damned. Also, happy Women in Horror Month. For this episode, as well as the next one, we have a pair of very special co-hosts, authors Elaine Pascal and Nancy Kilpatrick, who take us on an in-depth look at the nuances of writing vampire stories in the modern age. Are bloodsuckers still relevant in 2020? Join us as we sink in our fangs and find out. Welcome. Today we are discussing Do the Undead Do Taxes? I would like to introduce you to Nancy Kilpatrick, who has published dozens upon dozens of stories and novels and novellas. I've read many. If you're interested in her writing, you can visit her website, which is www.nancykilpatrick.com. She has two new vampire novels just out, and she's currently finishing up her sixth book, Vampire Novel Series, which is The Thrones of Blood. I have read them all so far. Very exciting series, and it has just been optioned for film and television. She's also working on a crossover science fiction slash horror novel. And I am Nancy Kilpatrick, the one that was just spoken about, and I am introducing my co-host, S, <laughs> which is Elaine Pascal. Uh, she writes a lot, um, all kinds of things, and some of what she writes is fiction. She's got a great short story collection that I love. It's called, Are You Ready for This?, if nothing else, Eve, we've enjoyed the fruit. <laughs> I love that title. And she's got a novel, The Blood Lights, which is fun, and I've read that too. It's a vampire novel, in case you didn't notice, of a different sort. Um, yeah, so uh, Elaine has got on the website also. It's www.elainepascal, and her last name is P-A-S-C-A-L-E, Com. So you can go there, check out her stuff. Uh, she's also got stuff on there for the Women in Horror Month, which is February 2020 this year. It's always February, but this year it's 2020. Uh, and in addition to be a, being a horror writer, she is a reviewer, um, and she researches all kinds of things in the mythology and horror realm. So we are here to discuss... Do vampires pay taxes? A burning <laughs> question that has been on everyone's mind for so long. And finally, two of us are going to tackle it and try to answer it for you. So, it's, Elaine, what do you think? Well, do you it's think an interesting topic. And I think what's appealing to me is there's a there has been a question about are vampires still interesting? Are they still frightening? Are they still intriguing in our contemporary world which is full of real horrors and I've seen a lot of um, films recently that have taken unique spins on vampires one is the transfiguration which deals with an inner city boy um, who, he lives in this gang area and he believes he's a vampire so talking about taxes I mean it really takes the socioeconomic um, turn with vampires which is very interesting and i i think there's room for writers and film to really think about i don't know if i answered your question but to really think about whether the undead pay taxes and what what their relationship is to currency cultural currency 
Right. No, I agree. I mean, there's lots and lots of room for vampires in the modern world. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that sounds like an, I haven't seen that particular film, but it sounds interesting from what oh, you've wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that uh, it's always been a question, you know, in the back of people's minds, whether it was the, you know, 1897 Dracula or the predating story and novel novel that came before that and the poems and everything about vampires. How did they get by in the world? Because, you know, you always see them there usually, well, except for something like, uh, um, near dark, which was the trailer park trash vampires. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you know, you usually see them. They're fairly well dressed or neat and clean, and you know, they, they might, might have a few blood spatters on them. You know, after <laughs> they had blood, but then they show up okay the next day. So, and you know, and certainly with Dracula, he ends up in society walking around with normal people at night. <laughs> but he's uh, basically, you know, cleaned up, and and it kind of brings to mind questions like, well, okay, you know, how did they manage this? Uh, this clothing situation? How do they manage the dry cleaning and the laundry? Uh, what about the owning Carfax Abbey? How did, did Dracula have to pay taxes for that? I mean, you know, his solicitor went bonkers and his the guy that was sent to him, Jonathan Harker, he certainly wasn't going to be on top of the taxes. So yeah, I mean, what happens with all this stuff? It's, it's skimmed over because really, you know, we're talking about a fantastical creature here right. and, you know, we have to make some allowances, but there's a lot of things like that. Uh, well, they here. often have, they often have like, uh, I guess you'd call it a familiar almost yeah, they where they have like in, um, let the right one in. She always has a person with her at all times who cleans up the blood. Yeah, some inept. The <laughs> that was almost pretty inept in that. And of course, the um, are you watching the um, what we do in the shadows series, which is amazing. I've seen some of it. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And they have the the man who lives with them, who he wants to be a vampire, but they won't let him. And he's of course sort of not. There. He's <laughs> their Redfield, and he's just they treat him like a slave. It's horrible. Yes, of course. Him, they make him deal with <laughs> all their messes and all their nonsense, and he's the one who he does do the taxes. He does. Do <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's usually a human around who's kind of you know sniveling in some way, you mm -hmm. know, ready to do everything. Um, I really enjoyed in the new BBC. Uh, vampire series or vampire three-part series Dracula mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that um, Mark Gaddis is in that playing the Renfield type character mm -hmm. in the modern day and he's mm -hmm. got that same kind of sniveling idiocy you know he'll do mm -hmm. anything and doesn't really ask all like a lawyer doesn't even ask him right. all the questions that he should because he just wants to you know do the job and get paid in some way right. so yeah there is that, but I, you know, I'm always like uh, concerned about not so much real estate, but the other things that are part of the vampire tropes, I suppose you'd say. And you know, they they can't see themselves in mirrors, and we are a very narcissistic society mm -hmm. in North America and in mm -hmm. Europe, especially, and maybe everywhere in the world. I'm sure in Russia, there's tons and tons of mirrors everywhere you look. Now you can't go into a shop or pass a shop window without a reflection. But how does that work? You know, how do you get by? Are do you just count on the population to be somnambulant? What? And can they take selfies? Well, yes, I guess you wonder about that too. That's a that's a huge issue. Yeah. It is.
It is a big issue. And it's confusing, you know, to somebody who actually asks these questions like, you know, but, you know, you work around it as a writer, of course, you have to. Um, and this is why writers always bring the vampires into the modern age in a way, because if they don't, then they're stuck with things from another age that, you know, like crosses. I mean, I just remember during the, the 80s and 90s, uh, when I was more into the goth world, and mm -hmm. everyone wore like around five or ten crosses around mm -hmm. their neck at that time. You know, it's like, yeah, well, you know, there were crosses in churches. There's crosses everywhere. So how does that affect a vampire? How did they get through the streets even? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, it's sort of a ridiculous uh, legend in that way. But, you know, it doesn't make sense any more than it makes sense for someone, you know, who turns into a wolf at the full moon every month mm -hmm. it's something that we have to accept in a lot of ways but it is curious and it is fun to me to envision who is going yeah and this is uh, people actually do write stories um i know a guy who's written a story i think it was published in um by pn elrog in one of her anthologies i've forgotten the name of the anthology mm -hmm. but it is from the point of view of the renfield character and uh, and you can see the trouble <laughs> the yeah. renfield have with all of this you know making the connections it really is like a go for job and a you know a, a way of of having to clean up as you say the messes of blood but clean up everything that the vampires screw up because they don't want to deal with this stuff I want to touch on something you brought up. You said writers bringing vampires into the modern world. Now you write in the Thrones of Blood, you've sort of created your own world, your own realm. Don't you find it easier, and I'm using easy in sort of a, I don't know, writing is never easy, but don't you find it easier to deal with vampires and monsters if you're dealing with the past or with your own world? Because if you bring them into today's world, it's I find it more difficult because people are like, oh, if there's, if there's a vampire next door, why don't you just call the police on your cell phone and get help? Why don't you just, you know, it seems like our world, there are always ways to catch a criminal, catch a creep, catch a monster that didn't exist 100, 200 years ago. It's true. And, you know, the, the film um, Fright Night had that, you know, the boy in the house next door knew there was a vampire there. The mom didn't, but the because she was in transplant. The children always do. The children always you know, see the monsters yeah. where they really are. Yeah. And no one, no one believed him, of course, you know, because what do you mean there's vampires next door? They're, that's nuts. So, yeah, I mean, anybody who call, imagine calling the police saying, there's a vampire that lives next door. <laughs> How much are they going to take you seriously? They're going to come with the white coats to take you away, probably, get you some help. But, yeah, that, that sounds nuts. So. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you uh, how do you get help if there is a vampire next door. I remember years ago, I uh, did a, a radio interview with uh, Joyce Nelson, who was uh, working for CBC at the time, or mm -hmm. in some capacity. And uh, the discussion was fun because it was about uh, what uh, vampires eating, basically. And mm -hmm. we talked about the idea, and that was quite a while ago, but we talked about the idea of how you go into a restaurant and you look around, and there are these people that are, um, you know, usually thin chic people and they don't eat they really don't right. they have food that's presented to them and they're the cause of all the nouvelle cuisine that doesn't give you enough food on your plate for your money so those people they just you know kind of pick at their food they don't need it they they barely ever bring anything to their mouth they just push it around on mm -hmm. the plate 
which of course is I think Dan Rice did in um, Interview with the Vampire as well. It's just the pushing around so it appears, you know, that you've you've mm -hmm. cut the meat and you've eaten some or whatever. You couldn't possibly be hungry because, you know, you just don't need food like a vampire. But yeah, so they have funny ways of actually interacting in society in modern times that, that really do get them through. If there right. are vampires, that's what they would do. Which is why it's easier to date a werewolf than a vampire. Because is it really? Tell me about that. Absolutely. You with a werewolf, you only have to deal with it one month a weekend, one weekend a month. I had that backwards. Which most couples need a break from each other one weekend a month. Yeah. With a vampire, you can never do anything with them during the day. Like you said, restaurants are kind of awkward, and I'm I'm very food centric. <laughs> I'm food centric. Food is part of my romance. <laughs> So, yeah, I agree. So I, I think I could deal with a werewolf easier, even though the, we're not going to get into sex yet. That's next time. Even though the vampires yeah. are sexier, I think a werewolf would be easier to. Uh, yeah, to yeah. And I wonder. Well, I shouldn't even veer into to werewolves, but let's say it applies to werewolves and vampires. What happens when a human woman is menstruating? Exactly. Now there's something. You know where there does is that something. go? Where does that? Is that are they more attractive? They must be for a vampire. I would, so. <laughs> I would think so. So yes. But are they more like a, a you know prey for a werewolf also? Mm-hmm. Like being in heat or something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it could be anything. And then there's ovulation. That's another story. Mm -hmm. But then we'll, we'll deal with those things later. <laughs> That's next year's <laughs> topic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that you know it's. When you asked about um, having uh, a, a modern world or an old school world mm -hmm. or your own world, to me, as a writer, I mean, I've done lots of vampire short stories. I mean, I've done all kinds of realms. And I found that writing this series that I'm working on now, because I've invented my own world, it usually mm -hmm. throws people for a loop at the beginning when they read the first first novel because they're like well where is this when is this you know mm -hmm. this is like one of the, breaking one of the cardinal rules of writing right from the start because you're supposed to really ground your reader in what the setting is what the right. time is, so that they can say oh okay i get this now let's read the story but i didn't do that because i wanted to write my own world it's like an alternative reality of our world and it could some of it appears to be set in the Middle Ages, but then there are things that are more modern, so mm -hmm. it's kind of a mishmash of things. Um, and one, it's really much, much easier to write in this this way, where you have you're creating it as you go. Right. And, uh, I like that freedom that I, you know, I haven't always had with vampire fiction because it's difficult in the modern world to get around the tropes that we were we've been talking about. And in the old world, it makes it uh, it's not where we live anymore. It's really hard to write something that really is set in the year 1500 because unless you stick to what is actually the truth about that time as truth as we know it what we know of that time to me it feels false if mm -hmm. you don't keep it real and that's a different time period and it's a different way of being and most of things that i read that are set in another time like the 1500s or the 1800s or whatever it doesn't a lot of them don't feel accurate because they are making exceptions to have it in a time that maybe the writer is hampered by by the way things were in that time period mm -hmm. and so they get around it by altering things of the time period I think it's very hard to do 
that it, type of writing. Yeah, and it requires, I think it requires a lot of responsibility on the writer to do their research if they're not yes. a historian already to really understand that time period because it, you don't want to, you don't want your reader questioning you the whole way throughout. So one little mistake of, you know, putting something in the wrong time period, having your characters using something that they wouldn't have used and you've lost your reader. Yeah, and you see that in films a lot where they deviate from the time and it's very annoying and, you know, anyone who cares about that sort of thing is, is you know, pulled up right away by that and just, no, that's not it. Um, but, you know, I also wonder if a lot of people care anymore about this accuracy of history um, in the story, you know, maybe it doesn't really matter. So I, I honestly, I don't know, but you know, personally, I think writers have uh, personal stances that they take and mine and then yours. And I'm sure a lot of other writers have the wanting it to be as accurate as possible so that it feels real. It feels true. It feels like it is from that time period. Going back to vampires, what would be, we've been talking about the tropes, we're talking about accuracy. What are some of the aspects of vampire mythology or what are some of the tropes that for you as a writer are non-negotiable? Like for me, they cannot be out during the day. They can't sparkle in the sun and play baseball with each other. To <laughs> me, that, like, I can't let go of that one. What are some things for you that you like, no, a vampire must have this? You know, Elaine, in the book Dracula, which is the Bible of vampire fiction. I know, he does go, he is out during the day. He is, does have an out day yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that that actually was one of the early things. And I'm not sure about, um, you know, other works that were earlier, short stories and novellas and things like that. It's not clear exactly. Well, the mythology, they, the, if you look at the ancient. Yeah, the mythology is they're yeah, yeah yeah well the mythology is like I, I, you're more an expert on that than me that the mythology being you know the resuscitated corpse someone who dies and then mm -hmm. somehow that dead person is seen and people start getting sick and dying and that's you know how vampires uh, regenerate or, or not regenerate but um, procreate mm -hmm. so yeah what do you think about it like I said, I don't like them being out during the day. I know, and, and I'm a huge Stoker fan, and I love Dracula, and I know he is out during the day and that, but I just don't, I like them being creatures of the night. I do like them fearing the cross. I, it, even though vampires are a cross-cultural monster, so it really is illogical, because there are vampires that live in, you know, Malaysia and Polynesia and places where the cross wouldn't have the impact. But I do like that. I, you know, the garlic's a little silly. There's some ones that are kind of silly that I could let go of. Um, I do like them not seeing themselves in the mirror. I like that 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 they can't do that. There's a sort sort of sadness to that. There's a sort of isolation there. They can't really relate to the rest of us, and they also can't even really relate to themselves by looking at their own reflection. So I like that. Yeah, that's beautiful what you said, and it's very true. It, it is part of the mythology that probably should remain. Um, and I like it. My other favorite one, and I've always, you'd, you'd have to talk to my children who are now adults, but growing up, that was one of the rules of the house was never invite a vampire in. 
<laughs> yeah, that usually gets so invite a stranger in, right? Don't <laughs> both ways. Don't invite a vampire in the house. You know? No strangers, no strangers yeah. with things. It's pretty <laughs> obvious that we have that protection from them. If we don't invite them in, they can't come in. That's true. That's very true. I yeah. Um, I I think that those are things. You know, I personally I also like the dark. I think. Uh, as a person who prefers night and low lighting, <laughs> yeah, the dark works for me because I find it more mysterious. I've always said this a million times, but the daytime, everything is so obvious and everything is what it is. You know, it, it's a refrigerator is a refrigerator, you know, a doorbell is a doorbell. Everything is, you know, an orange is an orange. It's all right there. And it, you can't mistake it for anything the way you can in the dark. Because right. the dark is the lighting. It's the it's the time, you know, I mean, even the natural world, it's always dawn and dusk when the animals get very quiet. Right. And because it's a transition. Mm -hmm. And I think that transition into night is an interesting time to actually write about and to, to ponder in general. But and for me, I like the dark too. Hmm? It's a vulnerable time. Most of it us is. are are thinking about going to sleep and when you're asleep you're vulnerable and thinking about something being out there creeping around very true you're yeah. not aware of yeah and it, it's also the the sort of um romantic time because mm -hmm. of, you know it's candlelight and dimness of the lights and mm -hmm. uh just mood music and people just uh you know having some wine together it's that time of day or evening i should say where it just gets more personal because you're I guess because it is dark and because there is a vulnerability. And if you're with someone that you care about and you like being with, then there is a vulnerability there that you're willing to sort of share, or maybe it's the other way you're sort of clinging to them <laughs> unconscious <laughs> level because who knows what's going to happen. But yeah. And of course it leads into our next topic, which is sex, but we're not going to discuss that today. Folks. Not today. That's right. <laughs> you have to come back. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think the vampire has a lot of tropes that can be um, slid into the modern era, for sure, as long as they're, you know, taken in some way that makes sense. And of course, it's how you present the vampire. Some are much more corporal than others. Mm -hmm. and some are much more spiritual or, or flimsy or ghost-like even than others. So it depends on the vampires that you create and what their game is, you know, what, what is their, their game that they're playing with people? Obviously, if they want sustenance, that's the bottom line always. You know, they are the pre predators, we're the prey. But besides that, if, you know, living in a, a lifetime is a long time alone. If you live into your 70s, 80s, 90s, and get to be 100 or 120, that's a really long time. Mm -hmm. Vampires theoretically are living much longer than that, several lifetimes. There's bound to be some, um, you know, wanting to sort of, gaming, I suppose you'd call it, you know, something to amuse yourself. It's not just getting up, okay, I gotta find somebody to eat today. It's It's more than that, you know, because they're, They've got other drives, obviously, and we see that in film. We see it in fiction. Um, and again, that BBC um, Dracula that just came out, mm -hmm. that's very interesting for that because that vampire is a gamer. He really is, you know, yeah. playing mental head games with everyone pretty much. And I thought that was a clever way of doing it because, I mean, that, you know, they always do that. They're always sarcastic. They're always, you know, double meanings of things. <laughs> that's what makes them interesting. Oh, they should he was be a gaslighter. He was a definite gaslighter. Which yeah. I, I have a question for you 
in uh -oh. your, your vampire knowledge that is sort of and it goes back to our idea about the undead and taxes a bit in terms of population um when we think about zombies one of the fears with zombies is them just infecting everybody like this zombie apocalypse when suddenly there's nobody left and you're outnumbered by the zombies we don't typically see that with vampires even though they are able to turn us into one of them just like the zombies do why do you think that is why do you think it's usually more of like a well there's that the zombies are they're actually the old vampires they're the ones from mythology that go back where you know the dead come back to life and mm -hmm. they they are you know they don't have a brain they're not <laughs> they're right. not thinking about what they're doing not thinking clearly because they can't think all they are is driven towards food and food is human and in the zombie thing it's a biting into people and you know they could chomp on the liver they could do whatever you know they're not just drinking the blood so i think the zombies are um yeah, they're 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 they can bite. You know, the zombies often. You know, the best ones I think are attacking in not always, but the best ones attack in groups. You know, mm -hmm. and that's more scary for most of us to be mm -hmm. swarmed in some way. Um, but that's not always the case. But then they get their hands on people, and you know, maybe four zombies are eating the same person, or maybe each zombie is eating four people. So yeah, they can expand a lot faster. Vampires also, we tend to make them more um, conscious of what they're doing because they, they do retain mental, fa mental faculties. They retain the ability to decide things and get themselves out of situations and put themselves in situations. So they can make decisions about how they survive. Do they have to kill someone to take their blood? Can they take part of their blood or some of their blood? Can they take it from several people a night and they, those people don't die? They don't turn into vampires. It all, again, it depends on what kind of vampire you're writing. So, yeah. They're selective in their... They are. There's a, there's a reason behind why they're going after that person. It's not just this mindless craving. It's it's like in the yes. in the BBC Dracula, he wants a bride, whatever that means to him. He talks about brides and that's, you know, someone that's very selective process, someone who can keep up with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the zombie vampire connection? Well, I think the zombies are, it's an interesting thing. I've, I've spent a lot of time with zombies, even though I don't care for them. And I've made a lot of money off of zombies. <laughs> Even though I don't care for them. <laughs> they've been the only thing I really sell big with. Um, and I feel like the zombies are really, there's a wonderful essay called Zombies Are a Barometer of Cultural Pressure, meaning that every time we have a different cultural fear, the zombie films and the zombie monster changes just a little bit to reflect that fear. Where, and I think vampires do that to an extent but not as much. I think people are more attracted to the vampire mythology of that Count Dracula type. You know, I don't think that type shifts too, too much. Well, although, you know, you have um, the vampires in um, uh, True Blood, you have the vampires in all the Twilight series, and they were... Okay, we're not talking about Twilight. Twilights are not vampires. Those are not vampires. Now, now. <laughs> no, but they, 
this is the reason I brought that up and the vampire diaries the same and you know it's bringing the vampire into the modern world in a way that people can relate to or some people can relate to so yeah I, I there is a great love of the traditional vampire there's many people that hate the new BBC series because it didn't stick to the facts or stick to the book but at the same time you, you know, people are bringing the vampire into the present. They have been for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even Robert Block did. He's got a story called The Cloak. Uh, I think that was written in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to go look it up because I don't have a retention ability for that. But um, this story is a guy who uh, is going to a costume party and ends up with a cloak, and, uh, you know, there you go. <laughs> and that's of the times. You know, it wouldn't fly so much now in that way. It would have to be written slightly differently, and it wouldn't fly really in the it would again you'd have to adjust it to the time if it was the 1800s but for when it was written it works and I, it's always happened people are bringing things to the present even that um, even the classical Dracula you know it just happens it, it which is what people want to be able to feel the I think they want to be able to feel the fear of the vampire now. After all, this is, you know, partly it's a, a, a lure in terms of eroticism, but it's also a lure in terms of fear. And right. there's something about fearing, feel, feeling fear that we need. We need that because I think it keeps us from falling in man hell's water or reading our, our cell phones and walking, you know. There's a, there's a fear that you have to retain about some things in life. And uh, I guess the vampire is part of that as a, I don't know, metaphor for many things. So, well, let's sort of, I know we're, we're sort of running out of time and we wanted to save things for the sex, but let's sort of wrap up with a discussion about that. Do you think the vampire will remain scary in the future? Yes. Is it still a scary monster for people? I think so. I think it, it will be adapted to whatever the fears of the day are. And you? I think so. I think they. I think they're going to have to keep tweaking yeah. the vampire and what the vampire is. I mean, I think the vampire is going to evolve, just like yeah. everything else evolves. Um, I don't know. It's funny because I, I taught a monster class for years and we would do Frankenstein's monster and we would watch clips from the old movies um, and they would laugh. That's, that's not a scary monster. And they didn't think at first because they were su such a twilighty group. They didn't think vampires were scary. And I had them watch 30 days of night. And then suddenly vampires were scary again, <laughs> you know, <laughs> introducing them to, you know, a more scary vampire or I am legend or, the, you know, those types of things that are, are more scary. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's something about the vampire that resonates with people. People have been talking about vampires since we dwelled in caves. There are cave drawings of vampires. <laughs> people have been discussing them since the beginning of time. There's some, and people have been discussing them in every country on earth long before those countries had ways of communicating with each other. Everybody has their own vampire in their own culture. So there's something about that creature that really stirs something deep within us that I don't think will just shake off. I think it'll stay there. I think you're right. And for me, my last thought and comment is that I think that's because the vampire is us. Yes. Well, he looks a lot like us, doesn't he? <laughs> for a uh, month. Us on us. He does. Yeah. 
<laughs> but like I think us in terms of um, we have that in us as a fear of our a part of ourselves in a way you know we could be that vampire and then there's people that want to be exactly and I think that's a, that's a really important part because originally and in the Stoker version in Dracula a big issue is the good versus the evil and good I mean Christian saving your soul going to heaven or being immortal and making a pact with the devil and how most of us fear walking that line and having to make that choice and is it <laughs> and I guess this leads into our next our next podcast is it desirous <laughs> and is it seductive to walk on the dark side yeah well our our listeners are going to have to join us again for another 30 minute podcast very soon in the same month of february where we are talking about that so check out the great lakes horror companies podcast on the site where you are now and see when that is scheduled for we don't know yet <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for joining us <laughs> yeah thanks Just a reminder, for Women in Horror Month, which is the month of February, I will be hosting women writers on my website. That is www.elainepascal.com. That's www.elainepascal.com. Each day will feature a different woman horror writer and I will post a short story or a poem by that writer. If you are interested in reading Nancy Kilpatrick's story, she will be featured on February 6th. A huge thank you to Elaine Pascal and Nancy Kilpatrick who made this episode possible. If you've liked what you've heard today, you can subscribe to the Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes, Google Music, and Stitcher. And please consider leaving us a review. They really help. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for us by name and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email it to glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by libraryofthedam.com. The show is produced by Sefer Jerome, Monica S. Kubler, and Andrew Robertson. Our theme music has been provided by Leslie Kirwost. Thanks for listening.